What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any other worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner, Camden Elkanati. Hey, Matt. What's up? This week's topic is what's up dividends and dividend-paying companies. Camden's going to start us off by doing a summary of the market this last week. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up podcast, a podcast that follows our weekly newsletter, the What's Up Friday newsletter. And uh, this newsletter is something that we pride ourselves on, and we work really hard in creating it. And we're very, very distinct about how we write each topic each week because we pride ourselves on the fact that we only write about topics that you could use in the future. So topics that will expand your knowledge uh, into uh, something that you could use and and refer back on uh, in, in the long term, uh, three, four, or five years from now. So in some of our newsletters, we like to start off with a little excerpt of something that I've written in the past. And this week we wrote about happiness. Happiness. The world is so angry and it's getting harder to enjoy the little pleasures in life. Satisfaction is a rarity because we always want more. Happiness is like privacy, hard to have. What makes you happy? Life begins and ends with happiness, but with the happiness of two kinds. The first, joyful and excitable. In the second, calm and resigned. We're always in a rush and most strive for perfection. Little disturbances, troubles, delays, occurrences change our mood to a negative one. When we don't get what we want, when we compare ourselves to others, when we have high expectations, it all puts pressure on our happiness. Our subjective well-being depends not on our absolute material well-being, not even where we stand relative to others, but on where we think we stand. One secret to happiness is to ignore comparisons with people who are more successful than you. Always compare downwards, not upwards. Happy people don't put other people down. People are happier when they do generous things and live among generous people. Expect less and appreciate more. I give anything, everything except for what I can lose forever. Enjoy every day as it comes. Who is rich? One who is satisfied with what they have. If you can concentrate always on the present, you'll be a happy person. Know that no one is ever satisfied with where they are. So that little excerpt is about happiness. Matt, what do you think about happiness? Are you happy right now? Were you happy yesterday? Do you think you'll be happy tomorrow? Well, first off, thank you for sharing that with us. That was really great. Second, I, I am happy right now. I've been happy recently. I think everybody goes through their ups and downs, but happiness is really important. And it's something that we all need to strive for, but we also need to understand that we're not going to be happy all the time. We can't put so much pressure on always trying to be happy. We need to kind of go with the ups and downs through life. And that that makes life exciting when, when you have the downs and the failures, because you know that you can always get better from there and you'll have to, uh, work on getting out of a hole uh, to, to make your happiness come back. Exactly. Which is like why I like the part you shared about compare uh, comparisons and not always comparing your happiness downwards or upwards. So uh, thanks again. So for to lead into the market uh, and about comparing yourself to others, let's talk about the affordability of housing in the U S 
So recently, the Bureau of Stats came out with a little piece on uh, housing affordability in the U.S. One third of U.S. households were cost burdened in 2017. So being cost burdened means that you devote at least 30% of their income to housing. So that could be either in mortgage or in rent. So 30% of your income goes towards housing. In the Southeast, 69% of low-income renters spent more than 30% of their income on housing. In 2018, the average U.S. apartment's annual rent was $1.49 per square feet. Uh, From 2001 to 2016, the number of renters who devoted more than half of their income to housing rose 3.6 million. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Half. That's half. So 50%. And that means that you're severely cost burdened. Yeah. Uh, We also saw some uh, risks in the market with uh, Brexit being uh, extended and delayed again. Uh, we saw the Federal Reserve cutting rates for the third time this year in 2019. Uh, we saw stock valuations uh, going to their all-time highest. Uh, the U.S.-China trade war still hasn't been resolved, but there's always talks every single day about it being resolved and about there being one step closer to having a resolution, but that's just uh, market speculation and uh, a way for the market to continue to go to its all-time high. Um, but uh, this week was fairly dry besides the Federal Reserve releasing their minutes and releasing their uh, their decision of cutting rates for the third time. What do you think about their decision? Do you think that uh, lowering it is a good sign or a bad sign of economic health? It's hard to say because on one side, the economy is growing. It's doing good, as we've seen. We're in a long period of economic growth. And so part of the Fed's job is to make sure that growth is sustainable. So they argue that by lowering the interest rate, they can help uh, make sure that growth stays manageable. But on the other end, I believe that the economy is being artificially held high. Um, I think it's way overvalued, and I don't think that we can sustain this growth. I do think that when it crashes, it's going to be a hard crash. And it'll be harder for the Fed to counter the crash if interest rates are already low. Um, Like we saw during the last recession, the Feds were able to cut the rates quickly. Um, But when rates are already low, you can't can't go lower really than zero. So um, we definitely don't want to have see interest rates go lower and lower and then kind of lose that safety net. Of course, and they're, they're losing their ammunition for when they actually need tools, uh, monetary policy tools in the future when uh, exactly. economic data becomes uh, more weak than it is now. Yeah, the Fed only has a few tools and their main ones are uh, interest rates. So if they... Interest rates, their- uh, manipulating uh, and playing around with the monetary supply and a new one, which most likely they will never use because it's just so expensive. Uh, a lot of people were talking about this uh, with central, the central bank uh, giving, giving out money to citizens, just giving out money so that they can spend. So when, yeah. when people become more frightened of uh, economic downturn, people are going to start shifting uh, their consumer behavior from spending to saving and being more conservative, either because they don't have 
any more money to spend or because they're afraid um, that they need their money for the future and they're going to start saving it or uh, because it's just so expensive to buy uh, products and services that they no longer spend. And because of that, uh, and because of our economy being driven by consumers with 70% of GDP coming from them, uh, we can see that uh, if, if spending decreases, a tool that the central bank does have is by just giving out money for people to start spending again, which is ridiculous. Like That would never happen, but people have mentioned it as a solution. Yeah, kind of a more direct, like quantitative easing. Yeah, basically a bank giving you uh, a check every week and say, go go spend it, here's your allowance. I mean, I wouldn't mind that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but the Fed did announce that this should be the last cut for 2019, meaning that the next Fed minutes in December should be held neutral. Okay, that's promising. So a way for consumers to start spending more money and having the ability to spend more money is by taking on more debt. And with the lowering of interest rates, the cost of borrowing becomes cheaper. And one creative way that lenders are allowing consumers the ability to uh, spend more is by a unique product called online installment loans. Matthew, what are these? What are these tricky things? <laughs> so online installment loans, it's basically a blanket term, but they're comprised of personal loans that borrowers can apply for online. They're often similar to personal loans you get at a bank. They are short term um, in the range of multiple thousands of dollars. The average borrow balance currently is about $16,000. But the catch with these are they have extremely high interest rates, the highest that we've actually ever seen in any loans because they're often in double digits. They can range from 34% to 200%. 200%. So they're basically paying uh, uh, 200% of the principal amount that they take out. So say they take out $10,000, they, they will have to pay off after the maturity of the loan 200% of that. Yep, 200% of that. And plus, you know, fees as well. So, wow, so they, I mean, they basically looking, pay double of what they took out. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, actually even even more. So, you know, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in interest oh alone. God. That's, yeah, that's it's unheard of. Um, this is just the latest kind of trend in the predatory lending that we've seen before. Previously, we've seen this more in those payday loans uh, companies that you'll see around neighborhoods that target low-income people and advance them their paychecks with extremely high interest rates. Over the last few years, we've seen those decline in popularity, but we're seeing a lot of the same companies uh, now move on to this online installment loans because they can reach more people and they can make a lot more money. And these lenders are targeting the middle working class. And since 2014... Uh, the the volume of online installment loans have grown eight times since that. Uh, from from now, the volume is around uh, 800 index value versus when it started, when people started tracking the uh, volume of these loans in 2014, it was at 100 index value, which is crazy. Yeah, for, 
Yeah, I mean, now we're looking at about 350 million consumer loan applications. That's about the population of the country. So what we're seeing is a lot of people apply for these loans and a lot of people apply for multiple of these loans. And the real reason is uh, the working class wage has been stagnant for a long time now, but the cost of living has gone up much higher. So there's been a slight increase in wages paid, but the cost of living has gone up and up and up. And uh, borrowers are turning to these types of loans to help them make up the difference. But then they're ending up in way more trouble than they started off in with these interest rates. And you're exactly correct uh, on that fact of uh, adjusted for inflation, the median uh, renter income, uh, the median income of uh, U.S. citizens grew 5% between 1960 and 2016, but the median adjusted rent rose 60% during the same period, and other expenses uh, have, uh, of the cost of goods also have grown uh, since that time because of inflation, because of tech, and because of innovation. It's becoming so expensive. Exactly. So... A solution to this, uh, to be able to make more income um, uh, without needing to take out uh, loans with these tricky products of uh, online installment loans, uh, you can buy into dividend-yielding stocks. So we've been seeing a trend now uh, recently that companies are starting to pay less dividends or no dividends at all. So a dividend is a distribution of a portion of a company's earnings to holders of its stock. So when a company retains earnings, the management of the company has a decision of either retaining the earnings for themselves by uh, using the money that they have profited from that quarter or from that year and buy uh, into another company, maybe acquire a company or maybe spend more money on their R&D or marketing. Uh, they have the option of, of holding the cash like we've seen in Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway recently just released their earnings for Q3, and they have a record amount of cash on their balance sheet. I think it's around $127 billion. $127 billion just in cash. And uh, the last option a company has is they could uh, use their retained earnings and distribute the, the earnings to their shareholders in the form of a dividend. So dividends are a meaningful portion of stock returns. And uh, through, uh, through investing uh, from the 1930s to now, we know that dividends and their reinvestment represent a major portion of a stock investor's total return over time. So as a investor, you have the option of either re-investing uh, your dividends back into the stock. So when you receive dividends uh, every quarter or, or annually, you could automatically set up that these dividends will buy more shares in that company, or you can just take the dividends and uh, you'll have to pay uh, ordinary uh, income tax on it, which is something uh, most investors don't want to do. They don't want to pay additional taxes on their on their investments, but uh, some people do, and they could take that money and then use it for whatever they want. So are we seeing, uh, what's the current trend with dividends? 
So it depends on the investor sentiment and it depends on management, but we've definitely been seeing, uh, well, we know that uh, sector-wise, tobacco and real estate and uh, some big tech companies, they pay good good dividends because that's just their their business model. Uh, They're very lucrative and uh, like tobacco, they make so much money and they're able to give their investors, their shareholders, uh, money in return because the profit margins they receive on tobacco are tremendous. Also with real estate, uh, with REITs. REITs pay tremendous amounts of dividends each quarter because they have the ability to because of the passive income from investing in real estate. But we've been seeing a trend of, uh, of fewer dividends being paid out and also companies paying no dividends at all. And a couple of well-known companies that don't pay any dividends are Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway. And the reason why Berkshire Hathaway, the company that Warren Buffett is currently running, uh, a very well-known company, and the reason why they don't believe in paying dividends is because they prefer to reinvest uh, their profits in things that allow the company to improve its efficiency and it's uh, and it's reach to new markets, to new con- new clients, and, and new businesses that they could acquire, and uh, they want to separate themselves from their competition. And the way to do this is to use their profits and reinvest it back into the company. That's traditionally how they've done things. But I want to ask you: Do you think they might issue a dividend now that they have a record amount of cash, or what do you see them possibly doing with all of that? All of that cash. So Warren Buffett is definitely getting older and older, and uh, ultimately uh, and sadly, he will pass on his role as CEO uh, to uh, another manager, another executive of Berkshire, um, and they might have a different policy, and they might institute a dividend. Um, it will be crazy, and it will definitely go against uh, Warren Buffett's principles but they'll be able to because they'll be running the company. But with their current uh, cash balance of $127 billion, I would really think that they'll be acquiring more companies. Maybe they'll acquire more companies in the insurance world. Maybe they'll diversify and go into something else. Maybe they go into healthcare, but they'll definitely acquire uh, a big company with that amount of money. Great. Well, speaking of healthcare, uh, that is our last topic for this week, is the U.S. healthcare system. In 2018, the U.S. spent $3.65 trillion on healthcare. That's just an insane amount of money. It's ridiculous. That's more than the entire GDP of countries like Brazil, the U.K., Spain, or Canada. That's It's a lot of money. At the current rates... Healthcare spending will increase to 20% of U.S. GDP by 2027. That equals $11,000 per person for every person in the country. Despite of all of that money that we're spending, the U.S. healthcare system is ranked 27th in the world. And many of the things that we can get out of our healthcare system here, lots of other countries can do them cheaper and better than us. So... I, why are we spending all this money on healthcare? Because our healthcare system is so inefficient, and 
we don't know how to run a efficient uh, healthcare system because we don't embody the European uh, socialist uh, principles and standards. Exactly right. That is why healthcare is now one of the top issues in the upcoming uh, presidential election. Um, a recent poll found 87% of voters say healthcare is very important for them or for their candidates to discuss. So 87% of people, and it makes sense because like I said, $11,000 per person, that's the average for every person in the country. So this is a pressing issue that the country wants to see something, some kind of change here. Like you said, they want to see this system become more efficient. So hopefully we'll see some things improve in this in the future. Uh, there's lots of people running for president right now. They all have different healthcare plans. Uh, last week, um, Elizabeth Warren released more details on hers. Her plan is one of the largest. It's a $20.5 trillion plan to overhaul the healthcare system. So it'll be interesting to see how these plans play out if they and who kind of wins, where we see our healthcare system go. Does it become more socialized? Does it become more free market? Do we have single payer healthcare? There are, there's a lot up that could change. So we'll have to keep an eye on this throughout the election and see if next year, um, whether the current emission, current administration stays, they have large plans to overhaul the healthcare system, or if a new administration is elected, we'll have to see what they do. And I definitely would say that our poor healthcare system stems from our, our poor and lack in political stability in this country. Um, the U.S. is, is fairly profit-centered and corporate-centered and capitalism-centered. And because of this, they want uh, to have their enormous multi-multi-billion-dollar market cap uh, healthcare companies like J&J um, be able to make profit and continue to make profit um, because these companies are ultimately helping the employment workforce and uh, other benefits and paying enormous amounts of taxes. So uh, I definitely think that uh, if we do get a president that embodies some socialism and uh, some equality uh, between the poor and the rich, uh, we could definitely see uh, improved standards in the healthcare system. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully we can see some improvements. But that's the benefits of working for the government. Uh, if you work for the government or for the city or for the county, uh, you get uh, incredible benefits, incredible healthcare benefits, um, like Kaiser Permanente or, or other uh, great uh, healthcare uh, companies. Yeah. Now to venture on, uh, the term of the week is Job Openings and Labor Turnover Survey. Now, this is a survey done by the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics to help measure job vacancies. Now, with the employment unemployment rate being at a record low of 3.6%, this survey will definitely help us in the future to determine whether uh, employment is slowing down or not. with unemployment being a, a key measure in determining the uh, health of the economy. Thank you for sharing the term of the week, Camden. Next up, we have our book review of the week. So what book do we have this week, Camden? 
So this was a brilliant book. It's probably one of my favorite books I've read in the past three years. And it's called Black Edge by Sheila Kolhaktar. And it's basically about a uh, story uh, of the journey of the hedge fund manager, Stephen Cohen. So Stephen Cohen is a billionaire. He's very well known in Wall Street and in the finance world. And it's basically about how he operated his fund, SAC Capital, and what made the book uh, so noteworthy and so great is because of how uh, he was able to uh, return 30, 40, 50 percent each year um, by insider trading. And he was able to do this because uh, he was very smart about it. And eventually he did get caught, but he didn't end up going to jail. He just had to uh, stop investing uh, institutionally for 10 years. So he had to close down his shop, his SAT capital. And 10 years later, he opened up a new shop called Point Seventy Two Asset Management. And the title, Black Edge, refers to the competitive edge someone has uh, either by doing uh, fraud or illegal activity or by just being so great at what you do that you have an overall edge over all the competition. And this book was a great story. I, I couldn't stop reading it because it was so well written. And uh, it talked about uh, the uprising of uh, the FBI and of uh, the corruption and of the employees of Sat Capital and how eventually it all fell down. And uh, he definitely did get caught. And there was definitely a lot of schemes with uh, divorce and profit sharing and involving other third parties. But he didn't go to jail. Uh, he did get caught. He did have to pay billions of dollars in fines. Uh, but basically, it's a great book to read. And I definitely recommend it. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So uh, I'm glad you liked it so much. What are some like the key points that you took uh, away after reading this book? So some key points. Uh, basically, the book was written in uh, the personality type of Stephen A. Cohen. And uh, he is uh, ruthless. He is aggressive. He is confident. He is smart. Uh, so a couple of key quotes that I took away from it is, Never get out of a position because you are nervous. And this has to do with uh, cutting out of your, your emotions from investing. Uh, you got you to gotta fuck them before they fuck you. The way to make money in the stock market was by taking intelligent risks. It was all about improving their odds of earning a profit by eliminating the ways they lost money and increasing the ways they made money. Speak the truth. You need to trade to win. In order to generate demand, you need to control the supply. And there's no reward without risk. So it makes off like what you said. It seems like he was really competitive. Um, and also looking at some of the takeaways you got from the book here, he really emphasizes like getting ahead of the people, other people before they get ahead of you. It's just, it's very strong competition that he advocates. What do you think about that? Because a lot of the criticism of like, Wall Street, for example, is like, it's too competitive. Corporations are too competitive that they 
uh, often that leads to negative implications for the average consumer. So what do you think about this competition? I definitely do think that in order to survive in this world and to thrive, you do need to be ruthless and you do need to have uh, a, a alpha-like attitude. Um, but there has to be a balance. You need to make sure you're not taken advantage of. You need to make sure that uh, you're pursuing your, your own path and your own ambitions and, and your own goals. But you also have to be caring and you have to be part of the community and you have to give back and you have to add value to society in some way. You can't just be ruthless and uh, mean and aggressive all the time. You need to eventually start working with society and building teams and having a family. And those qualities, those values of teamwork, family, community... If you have a very aggressive, very uh, alpha-like attitude, uh, you won't be able to achieve those. So it's definitely a balance. Got it. Well, yeah, like I agree. You got to find that balance between being too competitive and also like watching your back. Okay, well, that brings our podcast to an end. This week, we went over what was going on in the market. We talked about the Fed cutting their rates. We went over dividends and why some companies are paying less dividends, why some companies pay dividends in general. Um, we went over the U.S. healthcare system. Fingers crossed. Hopefully we see some improvement over the next couple of years on that one. We talked about online installment loans. So if you or anybody you know is looking into loans, be sure to avoid those ones because, again, interest rates can get up to 200%, which is can add up to tens of thousands of dollars depending on the size of your loan. We talked about job openings and labor turnover survey in our term of the week. Camden gave us a great book review of Black Edge. And that brings us to the end of our newsletter. If you guys want to find out more information, if you're looking for more resources, or if you're interested in anything else like this, please check out our newsletter that we send out every Friday where you can sign up for on our website personalfinancialindependence.org. Thank you, guys. Thank you all for listening into the What's Up podcast. And thank you, Matt, for the great conversation, as always. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast, and we would love your feedback and to hear what's up in your lives. Feel free to shoot us an email to the address in the podcast notes below.